Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to start reading in verse 1. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we've obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Father, we ask that as we look at your word, that your spirit would turn on the lights in our dark minds, that you would help us to see what it is your spirit is saying to the church through the hand of the Apostle Paul. They would understand this portion of this letter that he wrote to the church at Ephesus, that we would understand how what we learn here about you and your son and your spirit and their work in, your work in saving us, that as we learn about that, Father, that we would exalt your name, that we would understand that our salvation is grounded upon your son and him alone, that is applied to us by your spirit. Pray we give us understanding and joy and repentance before your word. We pray this in the name of your son. Amen. Well, I remember when I first met a man named Joseph Bonura. Some of you know Joseph, some of you do not. But he's a missionary who's supported by Sovereign Grace. He actually works at Radius International, which is um, the mission sending organization or training organization that we helped establish, which trains people to plant churches in Largely unreached people groups, predominantly in the Muslim area of the world. Muslim, Buddhist, Hindu, Hindu people groups. And he works there. And I remember when I first met him, I learned he had lost his right leg from just below the knee down. And um, I was about 26. I still remember this. And he was about 24. So we were, we were still very young. Um, I was pretty young in my faith. And I remember asking him, or saying, Joseph, I, 
How do you cope with losing your leg at such a young age? He actually lost it in college. And I, and I remember vividly, he, he looked at me and he said, by God's grace, I built my house on the rock of Christ. And, and, I, and I remember being stunned by that statement. I wondered, what does he mean? Well, what does he even mean by that? I mean, in the fullest sense, I, I sort of got what he meant. I knew he did not mean that, he thought, that somehow he thought Christ was going to give him his leg back. I knew that in some way he meant that Christ was the one in whom he trusted and hoped, and therefore he could endure the loss of his leg because he knew Jesus. I knew that. And I've, I've known Joseph now for over 16 years, and I can tell you with some sense of, assur- some, some sense of assurance that not even Joseph can tell you fully what he meant when he said it at the time. But what has always been true of Joseph, and what's always encouraged me about him, is that for him, Christ is the one in whom he trusts. He rests on Jesus. Christ is his foundation. Christ is his rock. Christ is the sure hope on which he stands. And I bring this up because Joseph isn't an extraordinary Christian in that sense. He's an ordinary Christian in that sense. Christians are those who hope in and rest upon and trust in Christ and Christ alone. Christ is our sure foundation. Christ is the unshakable ground on which we stand. But, and I want want you to be sure to catch this, what I'm not saying is Jesus is not just our rock when we're in suffering. Jesus is the foundation of the whole Christian life. The whole of the Christian life, he is the foundation of it. And it's only in Christ that we receive any of the spiritual blessings, the heavenly blessings that we have in Christ, that we have from God. It's only in him that we receive them. Last week I preached on the fact that grace alone is the cause of our salvation. It is, it is the sole efficient cause for our salvation. God was not moved because of anything in us or because of anything that we do to save us. In fact, if it was merely based on what we do or who we are that was generating a response from God, then we would certainly receive nothing more than his just wrath for our sins and our sinfulness. And it's pivotal that we understand who we are before God. We are sinners. And we are sinners not just by choice, but we are sinners by nature. We are guilty and corrupted in Adam. And I know that when we hear this, we imagine that God is just just angry with our sin, right? He's angry with our sin. But that he's not really angry with us. Because somehow we have bought the lie that our sin is outside of us. But, but I want you to stop and consider, God doesn't cast our sin into hell. He casts us into hell because of the sin that comes from within us. God did not send his son to save us because of something within us. As if he was rescuing us from this sin that's somehow outside of us. No, he came to save us because of who he is. And he came to save us from, to some extent, who we are. And what is due to us because of who we are which is his just wrath. So if you want to know how you contribute to your salvation, then realize that you contribute your sin and your sinfulness, and that's it. That's what you contribute. Everything else is all of grace. God was moved by the loving and gracious intention of his own will to save you. 
So it's God's grace that causes him to save us. But what is the ground upon which he saves us? So his grace causes him to save us. What is the ground upon which he saves us? You see, God is gracious, but he's also just. God is the one who says over and over again in the Old Testament, he will by no means acquit the guilty. He will exercise his justice. So if God is graciously saving us, on what ground is he doing it? Is there some merit in me? Is there something I do? See, some have argued that somehow our faith in Christ is our merit. Right? God sees our faith, and then he calls it, our faith, righteousness. And I'll deal with that more next week when we deal with sola fide, or faith alone. The Roman Catholic Church has argued that we are justified by grace through faith, but grace is actually infused into us into our hearts, and it inheres in us in such a way that we cooperate with God and we merit our justification. So they agree, yes, we need grace and we need faith and we need Jesus, but we add to the ground or the basis of our justification by participation in the sacraments and the performance of good works. So for Rome, justification starts with grace and faith and Jesus, but in the end it's completed by our good works. Thus, our own good works become part of the ground of our justification. And frankly, many, many evangelicals have subtly slipped into the same kind of idea. We see folks all around us believing their own works must in some way contribute to their their salvation, right? To their justification, really. Sure, it starts with grace, but, but it ends with me, right? I mean, Jesus gets me in the door, but but then I keep myself in there, don't I? Jesus is the rock, but but I got to keep myself upon the rock, don't I? I know God saves through faith, but but that faith is self-generated, right? And I mean, in some way, I contribute, don't I? Some of the Protestants argued the following in the 11th chapter of the Westminster Confession of Faith, which was written in the 1600s. Those whom God effectually calls, that effectively calls, he also freely justifies, forgives them of their sins, declares them righteous, not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins and by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous, not for anything worked in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone nor by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness. But listen, but by imputing the obedience and satisfaction of Christ unto them, they receiving and resting on him and his righteousness by faith, which faith they have not of themselves, it is the gift of God." Thus the Protestants concluded that the only ground of our justification is Christ alone. In fact, the only ground of any part of our salvation, whether election or justification or adoption or sanctification or perseverance or glorification, is Christ alone. The whole of the Christian faith is grounded upon him and him alone. In chapter 8 of that same confession, the Protestants said this, it pleased God in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten son, to be the mediator between God and man, the prophet, the priest, and king, the head and savior of his church, 
the heir of all things and judge of the world, unto whom he did from all eternity give a people to be his seed and to be, listen, by him, to be by him redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. So the Protestants taught that we are by him in Christ alone elected, redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. We are forgiven and declared righteous in Christ alone and for his sake. We merely receive and rest upon him and his righteousness. It's the Protestants taught. They taught the sole cause of your salvation, all of it, is the grace of God alone. And the sole ground of your salvation, all of it, is Christ alone. So the grace of God alone, Christ alone. This is why Jesus can say things like, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it's they that talk about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Or why he can say, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Or why the apostles can say, there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. Jesus alone is the ground of our whole salvation. And someone may object, well, well, okay, we definitely need Jesus, but we add something to all this through our meritorious works and faith. I mean, don't we? Somehow we contribute to the basis or ground of our salvation, right? I mean, listen, the majority of professing Christians do not agree with what I just read from the Westminster Confession of Faith. They don't agree with it. The Roman Catholics don't agree with it. There's a lot more of them than us. They said so at the Council of Trent. Many self-professing evangelicals don't agree. So why should we listen to this comparatively, relatively small group of folks who follow these old Protestant confessions? Why should we listen to them? And that's a legitimate question. Were the Protestant reformers right? Is the Protestant claim of solus Christus, Christ alone, as the ground of our whole salvation, is that even a biblical claim? And, and why does that matter? Why does it matter? Because for us, we believe that our authority, our ultimate authority is Scripture. That's what I preached week one in this series. It's Scripture. So it doesn't really matter to us whether the majority are in our corner or the majority are not. It doesn't really matter to us some kind of population or poll that we take. How many people agree with this? We don't care. At the end of the day, what does the Bible say? That's what we come back to. So to answer it more fully, I want to look at Ephesians 1. Because we don't appeal to popular opinion or church councils as our ultimate authority for determining these questions. We appeal to Scripture alone as our authority So the question is, as we look at our text today, does Paul ground all of salvation on Christ alone? Or does Paul reserve something for us? And as we look at it, I want you to pay attention as we're looking through Ephesians 1 to the Christ-centeredness of Paul here. In this passage by Paul, Jesus is beyond a shadow of of a doubt the ground of our whole salvation. In, In fact, Paul refers to Christ in the first 14 verses of Ephesians no less than 16 times. In verses 3 through 14, which is one extended sentence, Paul mentions Jesus 13 times. 
Now, I want you to pay attention to this as we walk through the text because Paul is habitually using two words. You ready? In Christ or in him. Those are two words. But habitually uses those two words. Paul believes that all the blessings of God are ours in Christ. Paul was relentlessly focused on Jesus. In fact, Charles Spurgeon, who was a 19th century British uh, pastor, English Baptist, really said this. Paul's harp had only one string, but he brought such music out of it as never came from any other. He found such infinite variety in Christ that he never exhausted his theme. With him, it was Christ first, Christ last, Christ midst, Christ everywhere. So he could never have his pen in his hand without writing something in praise of his glorious Lord and Savior. I think Spurgeon gets it exactly right. As we walk through this text, ask the question, where is Paul grounding my salvation? Where is he grounding it? And I think you're going to find there's really two words he says again and again. In Christ. In him. Just repeatedly, relentlessly, driving you back to the fact that Jesus is the ground of all of your salvific blessings. Let's start with really a primary statement. I'm not going to go through fully every part of this text, but let's start with the primary um, statement that is in verse 3, and then see how he breaks it out in three movements. Here's the, the first statement, verse 3, Ephesians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to begin by noticing that Paul transitions from the greeting in verses 1 and 2 to praise. Usually what Paul does is he introduces himself, and then he introduces his audience, and then what he does is he gives a benediction, and he launches into prayer for them. But in this case, he actually does all that and launches immediately into praise of God. And then he comes to the prayer for them afterward. As he goes through Ephesians, he does that. And, and who does he praise? Notice what he says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He praises God, but how does he identify God? He identifies God as the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Son, and Jesus reveals the Father. And no one has the Father who does not have the Son, and that's why when Paul begins to praise the Father, he has to list him, or name him, or identify him as the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what does Paul praise with regard to the Father? What's moving him to worship or to praise? Look at the next phrase. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Next phrase, who has blessed us? Now, I want you just to stop there. There's a lot more coming. The Father has blessed us. The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has blessed us. He has blessed Paul. He has blessed the Ephesians. And if we stop there with some kind of generic phrase, we praise God because he's blessed us. If we stop there, we'd get into all kinds of trouble. All kinds of trouble. I think often people in their Christianity essentially stop there, or what they call Christianity. We praise God who's blessed us. We even praise the Father of Jesus who's blessed us. And then they look around at their material blessings, their homes, their kids, their health, their bank account, their friends, and they dwell on those earthly blessings. And then they look at their own good works, their own sincerity, the way they are kind to other people, and they start to take credit for the fact that God has blessed them with those things. 
But is that what Paul's talking about here at all? No. He's not talking about that at all. Look what he goes on to say. Who has blessed us, what? In Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, I want to take that statement in two parts, because there's two parts to it, really. He is, let me take the end of it first. With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What does that mean? He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What does it mean? Well, I think he's, the phrase is referencing the blessings which come from the Spirit or the Holy Spirit. In other words, with every blessing of the Spirit, every blessing of the Spirit in the heavenly places. Now, what is, what is that talking about? In other words, what is Paul saying when he's praising the Father for having given all the blessings of salvation that come in Jesus? He's, he's saying every blessing that you have in Jesus comes by the Spirit in Christ, and it resides in heavenly places. What, what's he talking about? I think that, Paul, what, that what Paul's doing is he's going to go on to argue in the rest of this hymn, really, and, and really goes on to argue in chapter 2 that Christ is seated in heavenly places, and we are seated together there with him in heavenly places. So who's in the heavenly places? Jesus. And the Spirit is the one who unites us to him. And in him are all our spiritual blessings. They're in him and with him. Jesus Christ is seated in heavenly places and we're united to him by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit unites us to Christ through faith and pours out all the blessings on us that are ours in him. And it leads to the second phrase when he says he blessed us in Christ. See, there are those words, in Christ We receive all these blessings of the Spirit in heavenly places in Christ. I don't know if you heard that. Christ is the sole ground of every salvific blessing of the Spirit in heavenly places. Apart from Jesus, you receive none of these blessings. Apart from him, you receive none of these blessings. And Jesus is not a kind of halfway house to your blessings. They're found fully in him. In your daily life, it says, if your daily life and your faith and your worship is not informed by the fact that Christ alone is the ground of all the salvific blessings of the Spirit in heavenly places, then everything's going to be affected. Here's what's going to happen. You'll become hopelessly introspective as you try to find the ground of your salvation in yourself. And depending on how your pride manifests itself, because, you know, all of our pride manifests itself differently. Depending on how your pride manifests itself, you'll either be in despair over your damnation, or you'll be puffed up that you're really good enough to merit God's favor. Either way, your spiritual life will become one of constant navel-gazing. Your faith will be built on the shifting sand of your own morality and personal experience and sincerity. Your worship will become hopelessly self-centered and you will not know the joy of your salvation in Christ. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a British preacher of the 20th century, um, said it this way, I can certainly testify after many years of pastoral experience that the people who give me the impression of being most miserable in their spiritual life are those who are always thinking of themselves and their blessings their moods and states and conditions. See, when we understand Christ is the ground of our salvation, 
and grace is the cause of our salvation, then we look outward to praise the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and to bless his name, and then and only then can we really express, experience sorry, the blessings that he's bestowed upon us in Christ. Because we're not going to experience all those salvific blessings immediately because they're with him there. They belong to us and we're with him there, but we're still in this world. We're still suffering. We still experience the effects of the fall and sin and death. And it's not until we understand that Jesus alone is the ground of our salvation and we focus on him that we really stop looking internally for our hope or lack thereof and start looking externally outward to him. And that's where we start to experience joy. We don't experience blessing and we're not led to praise by introspection, but by looking outward to the Lord as the source and ground of our blessing. As Christians, we praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And you might respond, well, you're making an awful lot out of one verse. But I, but I don't intend to stop there because Paul didn't stop there. He's only fired his opening shot. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with Every spiritual, how many spiritual blessings? Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. But that's really a, a thesis statement that he has three primary arguments that he backs it up with really um, what happens here after verse three is that Paul gives a deeply Trinitarian argument that he lays out. Now the Trinity is there in verse three. The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who blessed us in Christ with every blessing of the Spirit. But now he lays that out in three movements where he says the Father has planned our salvation in Christ and the Son has accomplished our salvation as the Christ and the Spirit applies our salvation through faith in Christ. So look at the Father planning our salvation in Christ, verses 4 through 6. We're just going to move through these fairly quickly. Even as he chose us in him, in him, that's Jesus, before the foundation of the world. So, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with, in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now, when did the Father elect us? When did he choose us? Before the foundation of the world. If you don't like that, take it up with Paul. Chose you before the foundation of the world. On what basis or ground did he elect you? In Christ. Chose us in him. He didn't elect you or choose you because he looked down the corridors of time and saw something in you. In other words, you're not the ground of your salvation in eternity past. Jesus is. And he elected us to be holy and blameless before him and he predestined to adopt us as his sons through Jesus Christ before the foundation of the world. Now I want you to stop and consider this. What does choosing us to be holy and blameless and predestining us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus before the foundation of the world assume? It assumes that 
when we live in time, we will not be holy and blameless in and of ourselves, that we are not rightfully sons in and of ourselves. This assumes a fall into sin. Now, I, I am, it assumes we're by nature children of wrath. I'm not going to get into this whole discussion about God's decree of the fall and judgment before um, creation and, and all of that right now. Here's the bottom line. Before the foundation of the world, before the foundation of the world, God decreed the fall. Working that out is not something I'm going to do. He decreed the fall, and he decreed to save you in Christ. Before the foundation of the world. That's exactly what Paul says here. That's the implication of his language. That's why he has to decree to adopt you as sons. Because you aren't naturally born sons. I just want to drive into the language. We're not adopted or chosen because of something good in us. Just the opposite. We're chosen in Christ and adopted through Christ. Now he did this. Why? In love. He predestined us. In love, he predestined us. He did it because he loves us. He didn't do it because we asked for it or because we love him or because he saw some future faith in us. It's all of grace, and the ground is Christ alone. And because that's true, who does he praise? To the praise of his glorious grace. He gets all the praise for his grace. And once again, in case Paul's not being relentlessly clear enough, he tells us with which he's blessed us in the beloved. See, we receive all this in Christ before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world, God, in love, according to the purpose of his own will, to the praise of his glorious grace, chose, chose to save you. On what basis? According to the purpose of his own will. To what end? To the praise of his glorious grace. What's the ground of it? Jesus. What moved him? His own grace and love. Have, have you appeared in any of that picture yet? Other than the passive recipient of it? He gets all the praise for his grace. That's why we talk about or confess Christ alone. Our Trinitarian God covenanted to bring about our salvation before the foundation of the world. The Father didn't do that after he saw something good in us. He, didn't, he did it knowing we would be fallen and corrupted by sin. And he did it in his Son to the praise of his glorious grace. Further, not only do that, he announced this covenant to Adam right after he fell when he said that the skull-crushing seed of the woman would come and put Satan under his feet, and then he progressively unfolded this covenantal promise through subsequent biblical promises or covenants with Abraham and Moses and David and the new covenant when it reaches its fullness in Christ, which is where Paul goes next to press the argument further. Look at the Son accomplishes our salvation. Verse 7, in him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. Again, there's nothing that you're doing to redeem you. In history, Christ bought you out of slavery to sin with his own blood. In him, you have the 
forgiveness of your trespasses. Your, your sins are forgiven. According to what? The goodness of your own person. No. The incredible amount of faith you would demonstrate. According to the riches of his grace. The riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Think about this. He lavished his grace upon us. It's kind of a redundant statement. His, the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. So, so in eternity past, God chooses to save us because he's gracious and loving in Christ, on the ground of Christ. And, and in history, the Son accomplishes our salvation. He accomplishes it. He brings us redemption. He brings us forgiveness of sins through his blood. According to what? The riches of his grace that are, is lavished upon us. In all wisdom and insight, now this huge statement, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. I don't even have time to unwind this statement, but, but let me just bring it here. Here Paul reveals to us something that is disclosed in the Old Testament, though not fully disclosed. It's only partially revealed, and now it's being fully revealed, that the Christ has come to reconcile heaven and earth, to reconcile all things in himself, and that we have the privilege of being redeemed, of being caught up in that great reconciliation. It's all in Christ. Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance. Now, now how did we get an inheritance out of all this? In him. He gave it to us. It's in Christ. He's the heir of all things, and we are united to him through faith, and so we get it. Having been predestined, now notice this, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, here's the result, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Who gets glorified for all this? The Lord does. In eternity past, God chooses to save you. Why? Because he's gracious and loving. Because he wanted to. On what ground? On the ground of his son, Jesus. You contribute nothing. In history, God carries out that salvation in his son. Why? Because he's gracious and loving. Because he wants to. What did you contribute to it? Nothing. Nothing. Your sin. You're the one he came to forgive. And then, we not only find out that, but then we receive an inheritance. How did we earn that? We didn't. It's his. It's all in Christ. Relentlessly in him, in Christ, in him, in Christ. 
And the Spirit applies that salvation to us in Christ. So in eternity past, the Father plans this in Christ. And in history, the Son accomplishes it as the Christ. And now the Holy Spirit applies it to you. Look at 1.13 and 14. In Him, there's those words again. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the good news of your salvation, not the good advice of your salvation, the good news of your salvation, not something you do, something that has been done for you. When you heard about this and believed in Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. There's that phrase again. So the Holy Spirit applies it to you through faith. You might say, okay, so I, I do something. I contributed something. I had faith. But if you go to Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It's the gift of God so that no man shall boast. What do you contribute to it? Nothing. Nothing. Even the application of what Jesus did in history to you is accomplished by the Holy Spirit. Now you believe, but that believing is a gift you've been given. And when you believe, what are you doing? You're trusting in another. And that trust is a gift. So here's the question. Are you, are you looking... To Christ alone is the ground of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Is that happening in your life? I mean, I know, I know some of you, some of you here do not know Christ. I mean, some of you come every week and, and don't know him, and, and you've made us aware of that, and, and we're happy to have you here. Maybe you're here because you have family and friends who invite you. Maybe you're here because you're performing some kind of religious duty. I, I really don't know. But what I want you to know is that we're glad you're here and we have a very clear desire and hope and prayer for you. We pray that the Lord will be pleased to open your blinded eyes to see the light of the good news of the glory of Christ so that you will believe and be saved. Pray that for you. And I know some of you probably think that you need to clean up your life Clean up your act before you get to trusting in Jesus. But I'm here to tell you that you simply need to look to Jesus. You will not clean up your act. It will not happen. If you're waiting for that day, you will wait every day the rest of your life and you will die. And you will never turn to him because you will not clean up your act. Look to Jesus. Look to him and be saved. I know some of you may be saying that I I just don't believe I, 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 just, I just can't believe for whatever reason I haven't gotten there. And, and I want you to, to hear that I agree with you. If it depends on you, then you'll never believe. So what do you do? What if that's you? What do you do? Get on your face and plead with God to give you faith. And he will. He will. Go home after this service and get on your face and plead with God to give you faith and don't get up until he does and he will answer that prayer. I know some of you likely think you have something in you that's praiseworthy, something 
good, something meritorious. You do not. You don't. I don't. The cross does not proclaim to us that we are worthy in and of ourselves. The cross simultaneously proclaims something terrible about us and something glorious about God. It proclaims to us that we are so abhorrent in and of ourselves that the Father had to crush his Son just to relate to us. And it proclaims to us that God is so gracious and loving that he would crush his Son to save us. And here is the good news. God sent his son to save us because he's loving and gracious, not because we're good. So look away from yourself and out to him. He will save you. Trust him. Trust him. And believers, I I, I want to emphasize this before I walk away from this. You, You don't need Jesus any less than the unbelievers. It's not like you're, go get them. They need this. You need him just as much as they do. He is the ground of your salvation. Jesus did not just build some of the ground of your salvation and then provide you tools to to finish the work of, of, of the ground of your salvation. Jesus alone is the ground. It's all of grace, all in Christ alone. So we ought to be humbled and encouraged by those two words, shouldn't we? Christ alone. You cannot add to the ground of your salvation. You cannot take away from the ground of your salvation. With regard to this, John Bunyan, who's one of my favorite guys to read, a 17th century Baptist preacher and author of the Pilgrim's Progress, wrote the following. One day as I was passing into the field, this sentence fell upon my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. And with the eyes of my soul, I saw Jesus at the Father's right hand. There, I said, is my righteousness. So that wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say to me, where is your righteousness? For it is always right before him. I saw that it is not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor yet my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness is Christ. Now my chains fell off indeed. My temptations fled away, and I lived sweetly at peace with God. Now I could look from myself to him and could reckon that all my character was like coins, like the coins of a rich man that he carries in his pocket when all his gold is safe in his trunk at home. Oh, I saw that my gold indeed was safe in my trunk at home in Christ my Lord. Now Christ was all my all, my righteousness, my sanctification, and redemption. That's why he and we can sing with Paul, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Let me pray. Father, we ask that your spirit would be at work saving those who do not know you giving them ears to hear, giving them spiritual life so they might believe. Father, we ask that your spirit would be at work in us, reminding us that your son is the sole ground of our salvation, that Christ alone 
is our hope. That he is our righteousness and sanctification. Father, help us to trust in him. To look out from ourselves to him and rest upon him and receive him. Father, pray for those of us who have the tendency to think more highly of ourselves than we ought, that we would be humbled by those words in Christ. Father, we pray that you would cause us to sing to your great name in thanksgiving for your Son and his work on our behalf. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.